This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's episode will focus on one of the most complex and difficult challenges uh, modern American democracy has confronted, and that's the challenge of uh, managing counterterrorism operations, operations designed to thwart the actions of potential terrorists at home and abroad, while at the same time maintaining civil liberties and protecting basic democratic principles about human dignity. And we have with us, I think, uh, one of the most experienced, articulate, and interesting people who has worked in this field and thought so deeply about it, uh, Ali Soufan. Ali is a former FBI special, special agent and lead investigator on some of the world's most complex inter- international terrorism cases. He's now the chairman and CEO of the Soufan Group, uh, founder of the Soufan Center, and he's been featured in many books and films. If you've seen films on 9-11, uh, on Hulu and elsewhere, you've certainly seen his character depicted. He's been in television series. He's a, he's a frequent uh, newspaper columnist, and he's the author of two terrific books that I recommend to all of our listeners. Uh, the first is The Anatomy of Terror, From the Death of Bin Laden to the Rise of the Islamic State, and the title is self-explanatory. He gives you a real inside perspective. And then um, his second book, which was originally published in 2011 and uh, and now just republished with materials that had been formerly classified and held back by the CIA, now finally available in the book. It's really a a thoughtful, insightful book, The Black Banners, The Inside Story of 9-11 and the War Against Al-Qaeda, and it's available in paperback in its new form. Uh, Ali, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Ali, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what is the title of your poem today? Do not turn from the bruises that we bear. Okay, well, let's hear it. Do not turn from the bruises that we bear. For memory of love and leveled fields, you must remember them, return their glare. There lies in the bottoms the oceans tear, the ones the good have killed and left a field. Do not turn from the bruises that we bear. Do not leave the dead in the tortured lair. Truth is not a body to be concealed. You must remember them, return their glare. You will search earth for words she cannot spare, cracks you cannot find stuck in her ideals. Do not turn from the bruises that we bear. Look through the eyes, recall you did not care. See the bald ribs, the blood, and the skin peeled. You must remember them, return their glare. Please do not whistle here upon the air. Ignorance shall not make memories yield. Do not turn from the bruises that we bear. You must remember them, return their glare. That's fantastic, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the importance of remembering uh, all the times that we've transgressed on our democratic ideals and all the times that we have in many ways uh, violated our own principles when it comes to human rights. I think that's a perfect spot to turn to uh, Ali. You, you, you've lived this. How did you get involved in this area? You, you, your family is from Lebanon. Just tell us your story. It's in your book, but please share it with our listeners if you would as well. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, thank you. Zach, for the wonderful poem. Um, I never thought in a million years I will be working in uh, national security or in the FBI. Um, when I was in college, I um, wanted to basically stay in academia. I wanted to 
do my PhD and uh, teach um, national security or uh, international relations. And uh, the way that my life ended up was something that is not planned at all. A um, couple of my uh, fraternity friends were applying for the FBI, and as a joke, I applied with them just so we can see how uh, long I will last in the process before they kick me out. And uh, ironically, I was the only one who uh, was accepted. And at the time, I was uh, 25 years old, very young. Uh, usually, you know, the, the FBI, you, you're in you're on your second career, you're in your 30s. So it was a pretty young uh, age. Uh, and, uh, and I was getting ready to go to England, to Cambridge University, uh, to do my dissertation. And at the time, the average age of, uh, for dissertation over there was 36 years old, and I was 25 years old. I thought, you know what, why not let me go to the FBI for a couple of years, and then uh, I can always go back to academia. And it was more a sense of adventure, um, you know, the, uh, the, there was a TV show, um, I think the X-Files at the time, which was very popular. And uh, I was a big fan of the show. And the whole FBI for me was literally the X-Files, nothing that has to do with terrorism or national security. And then uh, my life uh, took a totally different turn. And here we are. And, and you describe in, in, in the Black Banner so well uh, how you sort of moved into counterterrorism. Uh, yeah. what, what, was the, what was the route into that? What, what drew you into that? Well, I was always interested um, about the impact of non-state actors on national security and on regional security. And that basically was supposed to be the topic of my dissertation. Um, so I was monitoring a lot of the non-state actors and their activities uh, in the Middle East region, groups like Hezbollah, groups like Hamas. And I was, when I was doing my research, I kind of paid attention a little bit to um, this former Mujahideen uh, guy, Osama bin Laden. He has been you know, declaring jihad against the United States, uh, putting some statements out there that is... Uh, you know, very um, anti-America, and uh, I think he was trying to create the Sunni version of Hezbollah in so many different ways. Um, so I was really interested in knowing more about him. So when I joined the FBI and I was appointed to, uh, to a position in the New York field office, uh, which is uh, the largest field office of the FBI, and most of the terrorism cases at the time were being worked from the New York office because of the World Trade Center bombing, the initial one, the first one, and then the terrorist stop when uh, Omar Abdurrahman, the blind sheikh, uh, was planning him and his followers to blow up um, uh, tunnels and bridges and the 26 Federal Plaza and the UN building. So most of the terrorism cases concerning jihadis at the time were being worked from the New, from the New York office. So I wrote this memo about... Uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, and uh, that I believe that uh, he um, can create a lot of problems down the road for the United States. Uh, that memo made it all the way up the chain of command to the head of the National Security Division in the in, in the office, uh, John O'Neill, um, the famous John O'Neill, who tragically was killed later uh, at the World Trade Center attack in uh, 9/11. And um, John asked me about the memo and why 
do I think Osama bin Laden was dangerous and did not know at the time that we had two people from the office focusing on Osama bin Laden as a financier, not necessarily as a terrorist. Uh, later on, uh, the, the East Africa embassy bombings in August of 1998 took place, took place and uh, it was obvious that bin Laden was uh, behind it. And uh, so John, um, you know, took me under his wing and he had me focus on Al-Qaeda network. And since then, I've been working uh, Al-Qaeda. Even after I left the FBI, I continue to, um, you know, focus on these networks and how they operate and how they coordinate their activities across the world and especially in the Muslim world and write about them. As you mentioned, for example, Anatomy of Terror was all about uh, how this uh, jihadi Salafi uh, brand that bin Laden uh, established um, took, uh, you know, um, uh, the uh, the Middle East uh, by storm. And uh, remember, ISIS used to be the branch of Al Qaeda in Iraq, so it is part of that of that narrative. And our our mutual friend uh, Lawrence Wright has uh, written that that you were one of the few people who really anticipated nine eleven and and might have been. Uh, the lost opportunity to to stop this. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, this is the tragic part of this whole thing. Uh, you know, um, if you look into the uh, investigations that took place around 9-11, to include the 9-11 Commission report, you will see that we had some opportunities uh, that could have stopped possibly the attack. However, we missed these opportunities. Um, when I was in charge of uh, the investigation uh, of the attack uh, against the USS call in Yemen that took place in October of 2000, we found out that there was a meeting that took place in Southeast Asia and money was delivered from Saudi Arabia to Yemen to that meeting in Saudi Arabia by people who were involved in the USS call. And one of these uh, individuals uh, talked to me uh, about, about delivering the money. Um, so we were asking other entities in the U.S. government for the longest time if uh, they were aware of any meeting that took place over there. And, uh, and the answer was no. And we continued our own investigation. And when we found out um, uh, the identity of people who were involved in, in that meeting, and we continued to find out locations and phone numbers associated with that uh, alleged meeting in, in Southeast Asia, and the answer was always no. Uh, we don't know anything about it. Um, on uh, 9-12, uh, all the uh, questions that I've been asking regarding that specific meeting in Southeast Asia, and the very first time we asked the question was November of 2000, a few weeks after the USS call attack. Um, all the information was given to us. All the answers were given to us on September 12. Um, it turned out that we knew what was going on in Southeast Asia. And two of the people who were involved in that in, in that meeting, Khalid Mehdar and Nawaf Hazmi, uh, have been in the United States since uh, January of 2000. Uh, unfortunately, none of this information was passed to us until after 9-11. And that's why in the 9-11 Commission report, you will see that passing uh, the information about Southeast Asia uh, to the FBI team investigating the USS call, um, you know, our team uh, could have been one of the uh, opportunities uh, that uh, possibly 
could have stopped 9-11 at its early stages. And all these things are, as you know, detailed in the black banners. Yes. Yes, and and detailed in in, in uh, first not just your recounting but also documented as well. So it's very impressive the way you recount the story. I, I guess one of the questions that's so significant here for us today, living through a pandemic, is this question about anticipation. Uh, we failed to anticipate the nine eleven attacks, just as we failed to anticipate and prepare for the pandemic. How do we do better? What what's the lesson you've taken away from this? I think transparency and accountability. And I think, uh, uh, you know, this is probably uh, what has been missing for so many um, years, uh, so many decades, frankly. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, as you know, when the Black Banners uh, was, faced, was first uh, published, um, lots of uh, information was uh, deleted, was redacted from the book. Uh, they redacted uh, significant portions that has to do with uh, some of the techniques uh, that we used, the U.S. government used after 9-11 to include torture and his interrogation techniques. Um, you know, the American people have been lied to. Uh, by their own government about not only the efficacy of these techniques, but the alleged information that was produced by uh, torture. Um, and now if you look at the black banners and you will see all these re redactions uplifted, and now you can read what's going on, you will see that, um, you know, uh, people were really not truthful about how we get information that resulted in, uh, you know, the arrest of uh, Jose Padilla, the so-called dirty bomber, or uh, information that resulted in stopping plots uh, in New York or in LA or in other locations. You will see uh, lines where, you know, you can read half of the sentence that says, after you know, they applied, let's say, sleep deprivation, and then you'll have a couple of lines redacted. You think that, you know, he gave some information after sleep deprivation. And now, um, since the book has been unredacted, you will read that what they redacted was not a single piece of information was given or something like this. So, and you will see it again and again and again. And you'll see exactly how we get the information. So the unredaction of the book goes hand in hand with, with your question. It could have not come at a more significant time. In America today, as we know, the truth is an increasingly, I always call it debased currency. Um, but that thing has been going on for a while. It did not start with the Trump administration. Um, it actually was there when this administration took power. It, uh, it, it went to its logical next step under this administration, where now we have a fact-free culture. Um, but now, you know, the fact that a lot of times truth is swamped by bipartisan talking points or by alternative facts, this is not new. Now we have also, under this fact-free culture, under the, this administration, <laughs> you know, the truth is also being swamped by conspiracy theories and, uh, and raw emotions. 
And uh, no wonder why our adversaries find it easy to divide us uh, with this information because we fell for it before. We, we've seen how the American people, at least more than 70% of the American public, on the eve of the Iraq war, believed that Saddam Hussein was working with Al-Qaeda on developing WMDs. We've seen uh, Secretary Powell uh, going to the UN and talking about how uh, Ibn Sheikh al-Libi uh, provided intelligence that Saddam Hussein and uh, Al-Qaeda were working together uh, in developing um, dirty bombs to, you know, um, to be used in American cities. And unfortunately, all this information was based on lies that was produced by torture. Uh, Ibn Sheikh al-Libi was arrested, was tortured. Um, he gave them what they wanted to hear. And after the war in Iraq, um, we found out that all these things were lies. So they went back to Ibn Sheikh and they asked him, why did you lie? He said, well, I was being tortured. I told you what you wanted to hear. That is that is what uh, that's what that's where why we are here today. We are here today because we have been consistently ignoring transparency and consistently ignoring uh, accountability. And uh, this is the logical next step. And one of the most fascinating parts of your book, and really what what is is worth the price of the book unto itself, are your chapters toward the end, the last third of the book, where you discuss your experiences, in particular uh, with Abu Zubaydah, uh, who was a high-level al-Qaeda figure, though not as high-level as some people made him out to be, and the ways in which the use of torture undermined uh, your longstanding efforts and the efforts by others in the FBI to get good information uh, from him. This is a case of people who really should have known better in the CIA and elsewhere, uh, who you you describe in detail, um, lying about this. Uh, why? I mean, assuming they, like you, wanted to find the bad guys. Sure. Why did they lie about this? Sure. I think, you know, you have to differentiate between uh, the people who, back in Washington, trying to promote and support the torture program and the one, the men and women of the CIA in the field. I always differentiate with, uh, you know, and a lot of people, when it comes to torture, they make it FBI versus CIA. It's not FBI versus CIA. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, officers and agents in the field versus uh, bureaucrats and uh, some other folks sitting in their cubicles in Washington. So um, I think you see in the book, step by step, how we get information. Um, Literally, Abu Zubaydah, started to cooperate from hello, <laughs> literally. Um, I asked him what's his name. He looked at me and he gave me an alias. He said Dawood, meaning David in, in Arabic. And I said, what if I call you Hani? And he was totally shocked uh, that I actually asked him that. Now, Hani is the name that his parents nicknamed him as a child. So he was shocked to know that I actually know that small little detail about him. Um, you know, from the beginning, I asked him, well, why do you think uh, you're here today? Why do you think uh, we, we found you and, uh, and uh, we caught you? What mistake did you do? What, who were you talking to? Um, an individual that you didn't know before, but you really wanted to do that operation. It was a bluff. It was a total bluff. And 
he was I was shocked that he looked at me and he basically started telling me about a terrorist plot that they were planning at the time and he was talking to person to do it in a third country that's a country that's ally close ally to the United States um, and then um, that information was written and sent to Washington and that's why um, you know we were immediately uh, told when Abu Zubaydah became sick that death is not an option because the leadership in Washington knew that he is providing actionable intelligence that was extremely important uh, during that time period when he was in the hospital, as you will see from the details um, in the book and the, the narrative and uh, the timeline, he identified KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, as a mastermind of 9-11. Um, and he identified Khalid Sheikh Mohammed because we showed him the wrong photo. We, he was telling me about another plot in another country um, and, uh, you know, that he was aware of. And he told me that the mastermind of that plot is a person known as a Zayat. We also know as Zayat as Abu Muhammad al-Masri. Currently, he is the number three in Al-Qaeda. And also, at the same time, he, uh, he was um, involved uh, in the East Africa embassy bombings. Uh, actually, he was a mastermind of uh, the twin bombings in, in Nairobi and Tanzania. And um, so at the time, at the hospital, we did not have any uh, photo book. Uh, the only thing we had is the poster of the most wanted jihadi terrorist that the FBI put out in the aftermath of 9-11 that included everyone who was involved in, uh, in plots or in terrorist attacks against the United States to include members of Al-Qaeda or to include uh, people who were involved in other terrorist, terrorist ops, um, even, even if they are uh, Hezbollah members and so forth. So, um, you know, my partner clicked on the wrong photo when he was trying to click on Abu Muhammad al-Masri's image. And, uh, and uh, basically, Abu Zubaydah just said, oh, no, that's not him. That is Mukhtar. That is the mastermind of the planes operations. And I was shocked to look at the picture and to see that this is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. At the time, we did not know that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was even a member of Al-Qaeda. Um, he was, uh, his picture was on the poster because of the Manila air plot the Bojunka plot, and he was wanted uh, because of his involvement uh, in that specific plot, him and his uh, relative, Ramzi Yusuf. Um, so we continue to get actionable intelligence from the hospital, and about 10 days later, uh, the CTC, the Counterterrorism Center team, came. Uh, the officers and the analysts were really amazing, but they had a contractor with them, and it was clear that, um, you know, uh, some people back in, uh, in Washington and in Langley wanted to do some different program when it comes to the detainees. Um, and that program does not include anything that we've done before as U.S. government. And this is where the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques started to, to, to shape, to take shape. And and these enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, you show, I think, pretty definitively what we already knew, which is actually that they don't work. They um, create despondence, and they create a, uh, a situation where the person being interrogated simply tells the torturer 
what they want to hear. Sure, because there's a huge difference between compliance and cooperation. You know, when you're doing an interrogation, you want cooperation. You don't want compliance. I, I don't want the person to tell me what I want to hear. I want the person to tell me the truth. Uh, you know, a case of compliance is a case we just uh, talked uh, about, uh, Jeremy, just a little bit ago. Ibn Sheikh Libby, you know, he was tortured and he gave information linking Al-Qaeda to 9-11, to Saddam Hussein, to WMDs. And that was used to basically justify a war in Iraq. Now, imagine all the things happened um, basically was based on a lie um, that uh, People got because of torture. Now, try to be me convincing people in Washington torture doesn't work when the folks in the White House and in the Pentagon got exactly what they wanted, a justification to go to war in Iraq. So it was very difficult to say that it does not work. However, by the time they knew it does not work, it was too late. We already went to Iraq. We already started a war where... Uh, you know, was 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 disastrous not only to the region but also to the United States. Um, you know, uh, national security interests both in the Middle East and and frankly here. Um, so yeah, there's a big difference between compliance and cooperation. And uh, a good interrogation uh, results a cooperation. It does not. Uh, you know, I, I don't want people to tell me what I want to hear. I want the truth. Right. And, and your book really had me thinking, Ali, about what the alternative is. Clearly, uh, you show that there are bad actors out there who, for whatever reason, want to harm American citizens. Absolutely. And so we shouldn't pretend that this is not the case. But one reads the Black Banners and sees how, in many ways, what we did made things far, far worse. So, so what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to have our strategy in sync with our values and our laws. When our strategies are not in sync with our values and our lives, we're going to end up, um, you know, finding ourselves in quagmires and disastrous situations. And that's exactly what happened on, on, on the war in terror, during the war in terror. Uh, I'll give you an example. We... Um, you know, uh, after we went to Iraq and, you know, the images of Abu Ghraib, for example, um, the, had so much, created so much damage to the reputation of the United States all over the world. And because of Abu Ghraib, more and more jihadis went to Iraq to join the insurgency than any other reason. And this is according to the Pentagon. This is according to the many generals who testified in Congress uh, about this. You know, Al-Qaeda on the eve of 9-11 had about 400 pledged members, people who took an oath um, to, to Al-Qaeda network and an oath, uh, gave an oath to Osama bin Laden. Um, today, Al-Qaeda has more than 40,000 members across the Muslim world. Al-Qaeda operated only in uh, in um, Afghanistan, in Kandahar, a little bit in Kabul. Now they have control of areas, large areas uh, in Yemen, areas the size of Texas, in uh, the Sahel region, um, areas in Somalia. Uh, they are still in Afghanistan. Um, they are in so many different regions to include Southeast Asia. And this is after we spend, what, five, six trillion dollars in fighting them. Uh, so that gives you an idea why it is extremely important to fight 
like we live, um, fight for our values, for our principles. Um, we have a lot of people who are very aware on how to deal with groups like Al-Qaeda, unlike ISIS, unlike any terrorist organizations. And, um, and I think, unfortunately, um, we totally disregard the golden rule of warfare. Uh, I always like to mention Sun Tzu when he said, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you will win 100 times in 100 battles. So imagine if you did not take the time to learn anything about your enemy and you totally forget about who you are and forget about yourself. And that's why we are where we are today, unfortunately. So I think uh, the alternative was clear. Do it right. Do it by the book. Have the experts um, lead the field. Uh, Don't just give politicians what they want to hear. Give them the truth. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened now with COVID. Um, You know, we're not listening to the scientists. We're listening to partisan talking points. We're giving politicians what they want to hear, regardless to the facts. And that's why we are, find ourselves in another disaster. Um, So it's basically, unfortunately, it's the same, um, the same factors that led us to these two disasters. We like to close our podcast every week, Ali, with something hopeful. You've given us really a a detailed and compelling history of, of in a sense, our fall into a world without enough attention to facts, with uh, the misuse of power at many levels. Uh, What can young people do to change this? Many of our listeners uh, care deeply about American society and democracy. Our podcast is built around the notion that every generation has to rebuild and reinvent democracy. So what is your advice to our listeners who care about these issues to help this process of doing it right and reversing many of these dynamics that you describe? Look, you know what? There's still a lot of positive things in America, and I'm not ready to give up yet. Uh, That's why I fought for nine years to unredact the black banners, uh, because the black banners is extremely important. Uh, Torture was one of these divisive that became a partisan issue in American politics. Remember, as of 2016, uh, candidate Trump was saying he wanted to bring backwater voting and worrisome motorboarding and he was getting a lot of cheers because it became a divisive it became part of the cultural wars in america and a lot of these things was based on a lie and that's why i fought for nine years for this book to be unredacted so people can know the truth of what happened about one of these wedge issues and then they can make up their mind about these kind of things Uh, always fight for transparency always fight for accountability after nine years and even under this administration uh, we were able to have a win and we have we're able to have a success um, in in uh, in um, in declassifying something that has been classified for years and years and years about the lies regarding the efficacy of torture and put for the world how we actually get information. Um, So I think that gives you an idea that, you know, if you participated in the process, if you worked from within the system, if you uh, fought hard enough, and if you fought smart enough, sorry, if, if if you fight hard enough, and if you fight um, long enough and smart enough, um, you will win and you will, uh, you know, truth always win in America. But in the same time, um, I like to use uh, the, the title of the poem 
uh, don't turn uh, from the bruises from the bruises that we bear. Um, you know, uh, let's let's face um, our past, our mistakes, acknowledge them, correct them, and turn the page and try to write a better one. Well, and and Ali, your your career is a model of standing up for truth and also working between. It seems to me these false uh, extremes that we're given. You you believe in the role of an organization like the FBI, but also want to hold it to the highest standards. And I think we all, as citizens, have an obligation to do that. And and your reference to Sun Tzu is is spot on because that's showing that we have knowledge not just of the threat. But knowledge of who we are and what we Absolutely. what we're standing up for, uh, Zachary. I, I wanted to bring you in on on our closing here. One of the the points Ali just made was using your poem as a, as an inspiration to stand up for the truth. Do you think that your generation is ready to stand up for the truth, even when surrounded by all the pressures to to lie that Ali describes uh, in his experiences? I think in some ways my generation is is much more dissatisfied than most at the lying that goes on in politics. I think it's not a question of of would we try and uh, stop such such lying and sub, such obfuscation, but I think it's a question of will we get in will we get in the arena will we actually decide to get involved in politics and in government and in public service. Well, we certainly hope you will. And I hope that uh, for all of our listeners, Ali Sufan's uh, new book, uh, The Black Banners, with uh, the declassified materials that he fought to get declassified from the CIA, that this book will inspire us all to see the possibilities that each of us can can play in our society to bring out more truth and to defend our values while also defending the other purposes of our society and security and prosperity. Uh, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And sharing, sharing with us. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, to all your listeners, please, nothing matters if you don't vote. So be sure to vote. That's exactly right. You took the words out of my mouth. It, it, we all have to vote and we all have to remain engaged after we vote. Thank you for joining us uh, in this week's episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.